This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 68. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Blanc. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today I have with me on the call Kira Golden. Now today Kira doesn't really get out of bed for any multifamily deal under $5 million. In fact, she prefers 10 to 20, if not larger. And so I realize that that isn't really as interesting as someone just starting out. However, everybody starts off somewhere, including Kira. Now what I love about Kira, is she's an entrepreneur through and through, and she got started at a very, very early age, uh, much, much sooner than I did and a lot of other people as well. And I wanted to find out more what allowed her to do that. And then she continued to up her game. It's like she had these levels, right? She went to one level, her mind shifted, something happened, and she boom, took it to the next level. And so her argument is that bigger is better. Go to the biggest deals as quickly as possible and everybody gets it, right? You got a more professional property manager. It's easier to get loans. It's cheaper. It's less risky. The biggest hurdle, of course, is the money and the experience. And she talks about bridging that and she wishes that she had not started with houses and small stuff for 10 years, but gone right for the big stuff. And it's very interesting to see how she got to that level so quickly. And so it reminds me of Joe Farrell's when I talked to him, how he did his first 170 something unit and what allowed him to do that. And it really is number one mindset. And number two is the people that you go after to surround yourself with. And she describes that beautifully in her early, early days and how she did that. So let's get right into the show. I think you're going to love it. Hey, Kira, welcome to the call today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, just uh, start by just giving us a summary of yourself and what your business is. Yeah. So I'm first and foremost, I'm a mom, single mom of an amazing two-year-old little boy. And he is absolutely the motivation behind everything that I do. Well, we're focused on being a real estate development company. We do a lot of our own direct deals, but we're also a platform for both newbie investors as well as experienced investors who are ready to go passive to have access to deal flow and capital. So we kind of bridge those two for people as well. Yeah, awesome. I just can't wait to get into your journey. Think back, Kira, how did you first get started with real estate? Yeah. So I was an insomniac child. <laughs> um, and I actually, back before Robert Kiyosaki was, you know, Robert Kiyosaki doing Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all that good stuff. I was watching infomercials. I saw him actually talking about getting invested in the stock market way back in the day. Um, wow. And that's what got me started was he did a little piece about inflation and it clicked in my little 12-year-old brain that, you know, my measly little $3,000 was sitting in a checking account. It was actually losing money because of inflation. And so I started investing and it kind of just grew from there and you started buying houses at 18 and then just kind of growing fairly what, organically. I, I know what I was doing at 18 and it certainly wasn't buying houses. So what got you in the position of even thinking about real estate? Yeah. So combination of probably three factors. Number one, like I said, Kiyosaki and, you know, the rich dad education, I sort of grew up along with it, you know, even before a cash flow game was out or any of that stuff. Number two would be my family. So my family didn't invest in real estate and my father's an inventor. And so as an inventor's child, your childhood financially is kind of like windfall and then kind of freak out and then windfall and freak out. And so there was sort of early in me, this desire for consistent cash flow and stability. That was really, really important. And then the third element was early in my career, I was really 
supported. I mean, there were a lot of people around me who believed in me, including my family. And so I was able to sort of take risks and do things that maybe other people don't have the opportunity to do. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm hearing you is that, and I was not exposed to an entrepreneur surrounding at all. My dad worked for IBM for 30 whatever years and mm-hmm. and retired from there. And so, I didn't even know this existed. Like, I was like so clueless about being an entrepreneur. And it, I was 35 until I actually took action on the my inner passion, which is to be an entrepreneur, but I was just never exposed to it. So, the lesson really is, is to surround yourself if you're in that environment with, with entrepreneurs. And the inventor is an entrepreneur as far as I'm concerned. As so, much as you can possibly be. Uh, oh absolutely. my gosh. <laughs> exactly. Right. So you were exposed to, you know, creating something from nothing, right? And Absolutely. And, and kind of the risk reward and the highs and the lows of everything that you go through. You didn't want to feast or fan with being an inventor, but why did you conclude that real estate might be the way to go? God, I, you know, I wish I could give myself credit for that, but I can't. I mean, Literally, it was, you know, looking around, what can you do at, you know, 18? How many options do you have? Starting something from scratch is really, really difficult. Buying real estate is pretty formulaic. So it was something that I could kind of wrap my child brain around and just do. Yeah. And so 18, you started buying houses. What did you buy? Rentals? Were you flipping? What were you doing? There? Yeah, what did you I was just do? buying. It's funny. My big goal at 18 was to have five houses buy one a year and rent them out and get them paid off. And then by the time I was, you know, 40, have five paid off houses and be making, you know, $5,000 a month of cash flow. And originally I thought I'll buy five houses in places I want to live like Sedona and Whidbey Island. And so I'd spend, you know, a month or so at each house, maybe two months at the ones I like better. And quite frankly, at 22, I thought, you know, hey, I'm making $3,000 a month. I This is more money than anyone could possibly need. Mm. And uh, especially, you know, if you're not working, I definitely spend a lot more than that now. Like your goals start to grow as you accomplish things. But, um, <laughs> but you know, that was my big vision. My big vision was get five houses, you know, and so I bought one a year and I actually ended up getting five houses in three years. But yeah, they're very good. Now, how did you finance them? Not so much on the bank side, but on the down payment side. How'd you do that? I'm not a very creative, or at least I wasn't back then. I mean, I just, I had $10,000. So remember I said Kiyosaki was originally talking about investing in the stock market. And I had like three grand of money I'd saved up from lunch money and door knocking and selling, you know, used magazines to my lovely, gracious neighbors and grew that to about 10,000 in the stock market in a custodial trading account. So that was my first down payment on my first house. And then the second house, we're talking, you know, 2001 to 2004 here. So I was putting deposits down, I put like a $1,000 deposit down on a property that was in new construction. And then I would sell my position in the new construction. I guess now it would be considered wholesaling. I didn't know that term at the time, but I would sell my position to a home buyer when the construction was complete. So I made my down payments for my other long-term buy and holds that way. I see. So you bought the land and then had someone build on it and then you kept the house or how did that well, work? Well, no, for example, there was a project in Washington, D.C., or actually in Virginia, the Savoy. So they were building condos. So I would go in and I'm like, okay, I'm going to buy a condo and you put a thousand dollar deposit down. And then when they finish building the condo, you have to actually get your financing and buy the condo. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I would sell my option to a home buyer. And the values of the real estate had gone up so much, even just while they were being built, that I could get a, a nice premium just for the option. 
Oh, I got it. I got it. Okay, cool. So you were kind of flipping these things a little bit. That's kind of neat. Now, did you actually buy and hold a second or third or, yes. or what yep. you did? Mm-hmm. In fact, I still own all of those. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't sell real estate all that often. I, if you want to sell real estate, don't talk to me. Talk about buying. But um, cool. yes, yeah, so I still own all of those. So I have about five single family homes now still. And then realize that single family homes are a lot of work. I got tired of snaking toilets, got tired of dealing with banks on on financing it you know it gets just harder and harder as you do single family and and so we started to make the jump to uh, multifamily and so I did like a 30 unit and then I jumped right up to 315 unit and I quite frankly wish I didn't spend a decade doing single family <laughs> yeah well let's dig, we're gonna dig into that I just want to kind of pay attention to how you got into real estate right so you started with essentially three thousand dollars yep and you kind of parlayed into 10 you put that into your first deal. Yep. And how did you finance some of the other ones? Is it from the flips that you did? Is that how you're financing um, the, the other buy and holds? Yeah, through selling the options. You know, and this language is kind of loose. I mean, what's a flip? I mean, do you have to actually buy it and sell it? Yeah. Right. But, you know, but yeah, I would buy the option. I would sell the option. And then I also, I saved a lot of money. I mean, while I was going to college, I still worked full time, 40 hours a week. And, you know, I lived in a basement as a nanny and I ate very little. And I mean, I, I know there's people out there that like can do real estate on their credit or bad credit and no money, but that's never been me. I'm, I've always been like, okay, you just work really hard, you save your money and then you go buy something and then you work really hard, save your money and then buy something. And you know, earning capital has always been my thing. Yeah. So you definitely were not programmed like uh, the rest of us, including myself, which is as soon as I made more money, I spent more money. And I, you know, that's, that's the way I was programmed. And <laughs> yeah. No, it- I'm, I'm, defunct on that almost to another fault like the extreme <laughs> opposite like hardcore yeah. minimalist i still drive a honda civic you know like <laughs> i love my hybrid gets 40 something miles to the gallon and you know that works for me you know i thought of it this way you know if i get a single family house or townhouse to cash for like 200 bucks i'm doing pretty good so for every 200 dollars i save off my expenses it's like buying a single townhouse or a house right so absolutely shave- Shaving off your expenses is huge. And and again, this is something you can do when you're young and you're just getting out of college or something like that, where basically your entire belongings, you know, fit into your car if you have one. And then we let it expand and blow up and uh, accumulate all this stuff. And so that the best advice I have to my younger self is, hey, don't do that. You know, your life was perfectly fine when you didn't have that stuff and try to keep it like that as long as possible. And yeah, clearly you, you did that. Absolutely. I made a conscious decision early on to live as a college kid until I turned 30. I always oh. had roommates. I always, it didn't matter how much money I made. And so by 22, my passive cash flow from my real estate exceeded my expenses. And mm. that's the moment I consider it independent wealth. Now, that was only a couple thousand dollars. This was not an original thought. This is Kiyosaki. You know, yeah. every time I wanted to grow my expenses, I'd add an asset. And then, of course, on my 30th birthday, we flew the whole family out, rented the presidential suite at the St. Regis and spent way too much money and then kind of kicked off the, my 30s, which are, I'm still a cheapskate, but I, you know, I have a little more fun. No, you got to do that every once in a while, especially when you achieve major milestones. Yeah. So, so you said you got tired of dealing with the houses what happened there that, that made you kind of go, um, maybe I'm going to shift my strategy a little bit? Because you had a pretty good plan. You executed it and then, and then you shifted. Why did you shift? Yep. Well, my goals grew. Actually, I had a friend who I give a lot of the credit to who just said to me one day, he's like, I think my goal is to have like a million bucks. And he's like, why not have a hundred million? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, huh, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and so then, then once you grow your goal, then you start thinking back from your goal. Okay, if that's my new goal, what is it going to take to get there? And then you realize, okay, my existing strategy isn't going to get me there. So it was a combination of that. And then also at the time I was doing fix and flips in Phoenix 
And, you know, I'm sitting there looking at the fact that, you know, I'm putting the down payment, I'm borrowing money from a hard money lender at, you know, 18% at the time. My hard money lender is making 18%. I'm making 20 to 25%, but I'm doing all the work and taking all the risk. And so that's when I started to transition. I created my first banking product, my first loan product, and started doing private lending. Started to realize that for the first time in my life, my time was more valuable than the money, right? Up until mm. then, money had really been my main commodity. But in 2009, 2010 is when it really started to shift to being my time and my intellect and, and leveraging those things. So your goal shifted. And mm-hmm. you looked at the value of your time and so and then you started a lending, private lending business and, and still at this point, multifamily wasn't in the picture. At what point did that start coming onto your horizon? Basically right at that point. So as I started mm-hmm. to think back and look at it, I'm like, okay, I'm working way too hard. And one of the things I've prided myself on in my career is really, really, truly caring about the other people I work with and their success. And one of the people who I think most get unloved are our bankers and our lenders. And so I sat down with my lender and said, Hey, look, I want to get to this point. How do we do that? And so it was really the big banks. I mean, Bank of America and well, really Bank of America was huge for me, but Green Bay Capital that sat down with me and really took the time to say, okay, you know, getting a hundred thousand dollar loan for a house is this hard. And right now I've got my hand like up a little above my head, (laughs) getting $5 million loan or bigger for a multifamily property is this hard. And right now I've got my hand somewhere around my belly. (laughs) It's a lot easier because they're like, we like that product. And then they taught me, they would teach me, okay, here's the, here's the markets that we're looking in. This is the places where we're favorable. And if you think about your typical capital table and your deal structure, your lender is your biggest partner. Ideally, right? They're coming in with 75, 80% of your capital to do your deals. And most of us spend way too little time asking them what they care about. And so that really, really helped me. And that's what they kind of drove me and said, look, you know, multifamily is a great space to be in. Now we're talking to them more and they're saying, look, we like student housing. We like storage facilities. So I'm adaptable to servicing the needs of my partners and my partners are my lenders. So they started saying, hey, you, you might want to think a little bigger and specifically multifamily. And you said, huh, that's interesting. And then what did you do? Then I called everybody I knew who I thought wouldn't take my phone call, but would just make me super excited if they did. <laughs> so I started looking through my LinkedIn and my Rolodex and going, okay, who do I know that's just amazing in this space? And and most of these, to be honest, are 65 to 70-year-old white men who've been doing real estate forever. Surprisingly, a lot of them were really they text me back within an hour. They return my phone calls and they've been very, very gracious in either giving me advice or guidance and or even at times co-sponsoring deals, bringing their balance sheet to the table to support me and being able to grow. Again, I would say the one piece that I really bring to that is that I think they get and they internalize when I connect with them that I take the time to learn what's in it for them and what's their goal and how even though I might be like this kind of up and coming real estate person, and they've been doing this for 40 years, I know I can still contribute something to them. And I figure out what that is, and then um, make it worthwhile for them. Now, why did you reach out to everyone? And so instead of starting to look for deals, you started reaching out to people. What was your intent in doing that and sharing your enthusiasm? Because you always find the deals that you want. The goal is to get super clear on finding the right thing to want. So There are tons of deals out there. And as someone grows as a real estate investor, more and more deals will come across your plate, like so many. In fact, one of our 
biggest challenges is wading through all the opportunities and finding the right fit. Crystal clarity about where am I going to have the biggest impact, the greatest ease of doing business, and be able to really serve the people I care about. That's been my most important thing. And you only discover that through communication with the people who you're in service of. Right. That's that's a very good point. So you gained some clarity in talking with some of these experienced people. At one point, you did your first deal. Talk about how that came about and a little bit about that deal. Yeah, actually, it literally came out of what we we're just saying. I was in LA visiting my sister, talking in her backyard, and I was having sort of a moral crisis. There was a, a situation I was dealing with that I wasn't, it wasn't 100% obvious to me the right answer. And I called up one of these mentors and was just telling him the situation. And he said, he's like, hey, you know, and he really did acknowledge, he's like, I appreciate where your heart's coming from. I appreciate who you are as a person. So what I want to do is I want to offer you this deal. And it was mm-hmm. a pocket deal. It was something where he was a, a silent partner in the deal and he uh, was going to facilitate getting us in. And so like, here I am, absolutely never bought a multifamily property before. I mean, I'd bought one 30 unit thing from a bank, but like nothing of size. And he held my hand all the way through the process and we got our first 351 unit apartment building. Let's not skip to 30, Kira. I know you love big deals and you'd rather not talk about the little stuff, but I think a lot of listeners wouldn't mind learning a little bit more about that 30 unit. Can you, can you go yeah. back well, and talk the re- more about yeah. that? Part of why I absolutely will, but, but just to give this caveat, part of why I skip over that is that 30 unit deal is still the deal that takes the most of my time. Right. It has been the hardest. I would probably say I spend 20% of my time still on that deal three years mm. later. Whereas the 351 unit, I probably spend 1% of my time on. Right. But yes, let's talk about it. So that was a, <laughs> that was a bank deal. So we bought a defaulted asset from Banco Popular down in Puerto Rico. It was a distressed asset. I mean, we got in with very little money. So because it was a distressed asset. So my initial investment in the 30 units, we bought a $5.4 million banknote. That was what the original construction debt was for. And we purchased it for a million dollars. Mm. And then we put another probably two and a half, maybe a little more than that, into uh, completing the construction, completing the renovations, getting the property in order. And so that was structured through a combination of investor capital in a, a loan, like in a first lien kind of loan, and a joint venture with an equity partner who brought the rest of the capital to the table. Um, and then I bought out the equity partner and now we own it. So back up a little bit here because you're, you're obviously, this is a pretty big hairy deal versus something yep. that's already already cash flowing. What stage were you in here? What had you done from the time that you did the houses to this one? It sounds like something happened in between then that felt you you were comfortable in going after something of this size and complexity. My mind shifted. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had done single family stuff. In addition to my own work that I was doing, I was often brought in as a consultant for other companies that were either doing turnkey or development in real estate or fix and flips. So I have relationships with industry partners that I feel I also had the opportunity to see many, many more transactions than I personally sponsored or did. Everything you can be involved with helps you learn and build your confidence. But a lot of it is just confidence. I mean, I meet guys that started in 30 units and 50 units. And I'm like, God, you're so much smarter than me. No, mm. they're not. I mean, they might be, they might not be, but they just they just had the confidence to do it. So during this time then, you, your mind is shifting. It sounds like your comfort zone was expanding because you were exposed to a lot of transactions. Is that right? Yeah, that, de- yeah. Yeah, that definitely helps. Seeing transactions and, helps. And you talked about investor money for this thing. 
When did the raising money come in here? When did that start coming in play? I mean, my very first deal I did in Europe in 2006, I had capital from outside investors. But raising money for me has always been, you know, I think we all have sort of our unique value proposition. And that's mine. Even that first deal, they came, the investors came to me and said, hey, you know, we see what you've been doing. We see what, what's been going on. Can we put some capital in? And honestly, like, I didn't know how to structure it. They were the ones who were like, you got to make sure you take some sort of profit share. You've got to take a fee for managing it. Like, they were really great and helped me figure out how to put that in place. And then I've also learned from investors who have been really shrewd, not so mutually interest focused. I've learned some hard lessons too. But all of that has helped me be able to get better and better at, at raising capital. But most of the capital has just come from people seeing what I'm doing. I talk a lot. I'm excited. I love what I do. And so I just had an investor I sat next to on an airplane and now he's investing in a deal. Actually, that's happened to me a lot, a lot of times. When you're doing something exciting and you're passionate about it, Mm. the money comes. Backing up just a little bit at the point where you started thinking multifamily, because it sounded like you were fairly intentional with how you reached out. Can you talk about who were you going after? And it sounds to me like you were sharing your excitement with basically everyone you came in contact with. You're like, I'm really excited about this. But it sounds like you were a little more intentional. Who were you seeking out? You're talking about some advisors or mentors, other partners who were doing turnkey. Who did you go after at this time? Yeah. So I've actually learned not to just share my excitement with everyone because some people aren't ready for it. (laughs) So I've learned how to kind of assess how much someone's emotionally ready to, to consider as possible in their world before I go too deep. But you know, we talked before about emotions. I use my emotions as a huge gauge. I have spent a lot of time learning to distinguish between fear and intuition. Am I getting a bad feeling about something because it's some sort of like divine, like tap on the shoulder, don't do it, bad idea? Or am I terrified? And so I use my experience, and again, giving credit to where it's due to Buffett, right? That expression, when others are fearful, be greedy. When others are greedy, be fearful. When Mm -hmm. I experience fear, I go after that hard. So when I'm looking at my LinkedIn and I'm looking at the people's names on there and I see names that make me afraid and feel small and feel like, oh my God, why would this person ever take my phone call? They're huge and they're big and they're amazing. I know that's who I need to reach out to. I need Mm. to like table my fear and move forward. If I see someone who I'm like, oh, it'd be great to reconnect. And I know that that call is going to go well and we're buddies. And then I'm in my safety zone and I'm not going to grow from that phone call. I might still make the phone call because I love my friends and I want to connect with them. But if it's about making growth, you got to go where you're afraid. All right. So you obviously you mentioned LinkedIn. You were looking for a certain person that would make you feel afraid. What kind of people were you looking for and connecting with? Yeah, some people I would consider my mentors now. One was the founder and CEO of the fifth largest mortgage bank in the United States, and then ran a private investment vehicle for both Hillco and eventually sold it to Blackstone. He's a big dog, and I'm still surprised when he takes my phone calls Um, (laughs) or when he calls me out of the blue to tell me, hey, what's going on? And large real estate investors, there's a group out of California. I mean, these guys have done, they've closed multi-billion dollar transactions. Um, One of my other mentors, I'm still waiting. He hasn't hasn't walked me through this yet, but he closed a $120 million transaction with none of his own money in the deal and was left Mm -hmm. owning the deal. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I look for those people that are at the absolute top of their game. 
Right. So you would just reach out to people and just reach out to them. And I'm sure you reached out a lot who didn't return your phone calls or LinkedIn requests, but it sounds like some did. Sure. And, and you just reached them out and you were probably not raising money at the time. You were probably trying to figure out how you can add value and you also probably asked for help. And it sounds like, well, they had pity on you in some way. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> they had pity on you. And, and it's funny that because uh, very few people ask people for help. And I've asked even some of my mentors, you know, how many people asked for help and said, you're like the only one, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and people actually actually do want to help, but no one asks them. So when someone says, man, and they can sense the ambition and the excitement, you're like, you know what? I want to be around that person and I want to help that person. And so clearly that's what you did. So you, you did enough of it. And just my sense is, that kind of puts you in the place where you are today. It's allowed you to shift. And I've noticed even for myself, you're just a lot of times one relationship away from a mind-boggling level. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the big thing too is like you start to realize, at least for me, I can't speak for anyone else, I started to realize that these people I was hero-worshipping are just people, right? So in some ways, it took them down a level in my eyes and helped me see myself a little greater. But on the other hand, I also maintained a deep respect for what they accomplished and who they are. And, and most importantly, the caliber and, and character of who they are and began to try to emulate the skills that they had. Like one of the big ones, you know, with, with Mark was every time we got off the phone, I felt like the whole conversation was about me. Mark would just ask me all these questions and he was super supportive. And I'm like, so I really started to work on when I'm having conversations with other people, I want them to feel when I get off the phone that it was all about them and not dominate when someone says, hey, how's your day? I could go into an hour conversation about my day. You know, it's like, no, keep it to a couple minutes and then how's their day? You know, and, and so I learned that from him and I realized, okay, that skill has helped get him where he is. So from the time when you decided to do multifamily, this is going back when you're meeting with lenders and saying, here's probably what you should do. Here's the markets we like. Here's the kind of asset class we like. From the time you said, huh, multifamily to the time you did your 30 unit deal, how much time has gone by? Since then or in between that thought process? In between, between. So from between the time oh, you decided multifamily and you about, did your 30 unit? Probably about a week. <laughs> really? Yeah, I don't really <laughs> let grass grow. <laughs> so you immediately started going after this 30 unit. Yeah. Now at this point, did you have any money raised or no. where were you with the money raised? No, but I went to a partner and said, hey, I don't really know how to raise this money. The money that I've raised so far for my kinds of deals is much smaller. You know, you come in as the money raiser. I'll come in as the operating partner. I'll bring some of my investors. If it's a three and a half million dollar raise, maybe I could bring half a million to the table and they were bringing three, I would bring my half a million so I could keep building my own investor base, but they were there as a backstop to help fill the gap. Yes, exactly. Now, what gave you the confidence that you can bring 500,000 to the table? Is that simply since the relationships that you built up up to this point? Yeah, exactly. I was looking at, okay, what do we have? And you know, one of the things I've learned and now that I'm helping other people learn how to raise capital is that I do this. This is one of my skills I have naturally, visually in my mind. I see a piece of paper with all the names of the investors who would be a great fit for that deal. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily see their dollar amounts. I don't know if they're going to invest 100,000, 15,000, whatever. Going back to the point about really caring about the people I work with, I know that if I do a deal in Denver, there's certain investors that really love this market or they want a reason to come out here and do a due diligence visit and you know go skiing in Aspen or I know who they are and so I know what they're going to like. And then figuring out the exact amount of money, that's just kind of part of knowing who they are and what their capacity is at any given time. Also, like with Puerto Rico, it's like I know there's investors who really like 
vacationing. So, you know, these are vacation assets. So we just, we opened it up and we said, look, if you're an equity investor on this deal, you can also come down and use the asset. It's like a timeshare without all the fees. So knowing what someone cares about, knowing who they are, that's more important than knowing where the capital is going to come from. Because if you really, really dig down and know what motivates the people, just right even in your immediate circle, everyone has more money than anyone realizes. And the money's there. Now, clearly, the equity partner made a huge difference here because if this equity partner had not existed, you probably wouldn't have gone after this deal. Is that fair? <laughs> so that's an interesting point. No, it's not fair. I still would have done the deal. <laughs> um, and in fact, I kind of kicked myself. So I feel like in that situation, I went with sort of low-hanging fruit because it seemed easier and it actually ended up being way more costly and, and complicated. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it ended up becoming sort of a, a legal battle with the equity partner and eventually we had mm. to buy them out. And one of the things I've learned is that capital is not the most important thing. The absolute most important thing is sort of an alignment of philosophy and alignment of heart. I say no to capital all the time now, whereas at that point, I didn't know to do that. I say no to capital if it's not a fit, like uh, personality-wise. And this is interesting advice. I mean, one advice is obviously ask you how you would have done the deal without this equity partner, because that's interesting also. It, it kind of shows how resourceful you're being. But give me an example of the misalignment of heart and philosophy. So obviously, all money is green, but you figure out, that, oh my gosh, they want something else and it's inconsistent with what I want. What, what was at the root of that conflict? I don't want to talk about that specific situation, really just out of respect for the other partner. It may have ended not well, but I wish them well and I wish them success. So I don't want to, I don't want to do any, like go into details there, but I'm happy to talk about kind of a hypothetical or conceptual situation or a different situation even. Well, here's a perfect example. I got involved with a new investor, brand new investor who had some capital and wanted to learn the business. We were doing single family stuff and we were also, you know, good friends but I didn't dive down deep enough to really understand her emotional readiness to be an investor. And so what ended up happening from my perspective, and I'm sure she has her perspective too, and we're still friends. It's not like it was the end of the world, but it just meant, hey, maybe we shouldn't do business together. She would get very emotionally connected to what things like looked and felt like, what the curtains looked like, what the vibe or the feel of a property was. And I'm much more bottom line. These are both valid ways of doing business. I see people who, who do them different ways, but we weren't in alignment with that. And it started to create conflict. We would go over budget. She would believe that that would increase additional revenue. I would believe that it was just taking us over budget. <laughs> mm. um, you know, it, we were just not in alignment of sort of how we saw things and how we should do things. Another example is I'm a long-term buy and hold investor. There are lots of investors out there that love to fix and flip. They want to see velocity of capital, move that money, move that money, move that money. I think transactions are expensive. I think you're best getting into a good deal, holding onto it, running it very, very well, and just letting it kick off cash flow like an ATM machine for the rest of your life. There mm. needs to be an alignment there, or mm. eventually there will be conflict. Um, right. And so that's kind of the stuff I'm talking about. I don't mean heart like you're a bad person, so I won't work with you as an investor occasionally, very occasionally that happens. And a lot of people don't know themselves that well. So I really take it upon myself to ask a lot of questions from a lot of different angles to help them determine for themselves what their investment philosophy is right. and what, now, what they really care about. That's a, that's a really good point. Now, how would you have done that deal without that equity partner at the time? Because you would yeah, have had to come um, up with three and a half million. I'll throw some examples out, but these are all, you know, very theoretical, obviously, because I, I don't know exactly what would have actually <laughs> happened. But there's a number of things. I mean, I'm not beyond sort of 
door knocking, <laughs> you know, in a sense, like just getting on the phone and, and banging it out and calling everyone I know and, and pushing my own boundaries to raise more capital than I thought I knew how to do, right? Because the 500 was pretty soft circled. It was sort of in the bag. I'm sure if I pushed myself, I could have gone beyond that. I could have gone back to the bank and tried to get them to carry back some of that debt. I could have restructured how I did it. So instead of putting the two and a half million in right away, I could have, you know, spread out how long the construction process took and spent, mm. you know, more time doing it, which would give me the ability to raise, you know, so I only really needed a million to buy the note. I could have raised, you know, 250000 a month after that to do the construction instead of having it all done at once. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to skin it. And I think the most important thing is drawing that line in the sand and what you're going to take and what you're not going to take, and then working backwards from your conclusion to figure out what the steps are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty clear that you're you're definitely an entrepreneur in hard care because <laughs> you <laughs> you do something as all entrepreneurs do without actually having figured it out. And it's kind of like we figured it out just in time. Yeah. <laughs> and even though clearly having an equity partner in your back pocket accelerates the process uh, for sure. So you got this 30 unit under your belt pretty hairy one for your first deal. And now you went immediately from 30 to 315 and you got this through a pocket listing for one of your you know, advisors or mentors. Yep. And tell us a little bit about that one. That was another hairy deal. I mean, it was a vacant, drug infested, prostitution, crime infested, terrible area in Dayton, which I am proud to say now has a great reputation. We're attracting phenomenal tenants. The mayor reached out to us, came out to see the project. We got awarded one of the top 10 complexes in the Dayton area. Mm. So we completely turned that around. And, and this goes back to the point about heart. I have a heart to go into communities and go to unloved properties and unloved places and bring love and light back into them. Some investors are like, F that. I just want cash flow. <laughs> right, right, and, right. and that's fine too. But we went in and we took that thing. It was a full gut rehab. I mean, if you think about when you buy a single family, take it down to the studs and rebuild it. We did that 315 times. In fact, we're still in the process of finishing the last phase. Mm, wow, that is amazing. That is amazing. And how did you fund that on the equity side? Did you do the same thing you did before? Did you have a, a different equity partner? How did you, no, how did you no, do the equity No, no equity partner. We really have decided that we're focusing on my heart, my calling, my purpose is really for, I call them first generation made good. I mean, it's sort of the community I, I align with. It's people who... You know, your parents worked really hard to give you opportunity. You know, maybe they worked 31 years at IBM so that you could go to college and get a good opportunity. So now people have a net worth between, you know, maybe a million or $5 million. They've got money in 401ks or self-directed IRAs. You know, they don't really believe that Wall Street is looking out for their best interest. They're tired of being slung, you know, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds and want to do something else. And so we've really built a whole engine about finding and reaching out to those people and helping them get capital placed. Yeah, exactly right. So you made a comment earlier that says, I wish I hadn't spent 10 years with houses and, and small stuff. Yeah. Uh, what would you, if you have your, your younger self here, at what point would you have told yourself to kind of maybe uh, switch the plan a little bit? Right away. <laughs> no, is that right? I, I would have started completely differently. I, you know, it's so hard to say because I learned so much from that. And, and I can't be snowed by a property management company. I can see the problems coming a million miles away because I did get my hands dirty for a long time and I did see it. Mm. And I can't be snowed by contractors. I know what it takes to, you know, lay tile and I know how long it takes to pull electrical and I know what it takes to do roofing. And you can't tell me it took a day and a half because I know because I did it. So, I mean, there's certainly value from that. 
So maybe, maybe two years, maybe three. I don't know. That still seems like a lot. I mean, it's just so much better doing it this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But you got to start somewhere, right? I mean, imagine you're 18 or, or 20, right? How would you have felt starting off in LinkedIn, basically reaching out to some of these high profile people? Would you have done it if someone sat you down and said, here's what I think you should do? Would you say, no, I'll wait till I'm, you know, 30 years old? No, I would have done it. I would have done it yeah. because I, you know, one of the reasons I have a heart to help the people I have a heart to help for is because, you know, we don't have a network. When you want to reframe an entire economic system, when you want to shift the way capital is moving through a system, the only way to do that is for people who have a particular mindset to jump an economic bracket, right? So in other words, the people who manage capital right now are the children of the people who managed capital 30 years ago, who are the children of the people who managed capital 30 years ago, more or less. I believe in our economic system. I believe people can move around and there's some more mobility. But when you grow up spending your summers in uh, the Hamptons and you're, you know, meeting people and you're connecting and then you go to Yale and then you go to Harvard and then you decide, hey, you kind of lift up your head and you go, I'm going to do capital management. You know exactly what your path is and you do that path because that's the path that you've been kind of made available to you your whole life. When you grow up, you know, in the suburbs with parents who are working, you know, both parents are working jobs so that you can meet the mortgage and maybe it might even be a nice mortgage. You might have a nice, you know, 4,000 square foot house in middle America and, you know, everyone's done the best they could and they did great. You still don't have that access. And so you don't know to think the right way. And, and that's, that's what I would say it was like, I had I spent 10 years trying to figure out how do I surround myself with people that teach me to think the right way, but how do I maintain my roots so I don't become so institutionalized that I think like every other Harvard grad? And finding right. that balance, that's the fun thing for me. And, I, and that's what I would encourage other investors like me to do is think and believe that you're at the same caliber as the guys at the top and then figure out how to get there faster, faster than I did. <laughs> Yeah, so so let's imagine you're having coffee with uh, with an, an old friend or acquaintance, and they're just grown tired of their of their job, and they're looking for a way out, and they they're looking at real estate and multifamily, but they're not exactly sure how to get started, and they're, they're a bit anxious. What what would you advise them to do first? The very first thing I would do is have a conversation about figuring out if they really want to get into real estate, or if they just don't want to do their job anymore. Because the first decision is, are you going to be a real estate professional, right? Meaning, are you going to go scour deals? Or are you going to structure deals? Are you going to work with banks on financing? Or do you want to just have the cash flow? And if you've worked a job for a long time, you know, you probably have enough tucked away to go completely passive. The average person who's worked 20 years at a profession, you know, in their 50s or late 40s and thinking, I'm tired of doing this. I want to retire early can do it, but doesn't know how. Mm -hmm. And so most of the time we end up having a conversation about here's how you can do it. Now that you're capable financially of retiring, now let's talk about, do you really want to be active in real estate? And of those people, I would say probably 10% still come back and say, yeah, yeah, I love it. I love finding the deals. I love negotiating with brokers. I love closing the contract. I'm a deal junkie. I want to do it. And if they're that 10% that really, really wants to do it, I would encourage them to align themselves with somebody who's more experienced, but who's ethical and fair and who's going to support their highest and best and learn very quickly rather than trying to do it completely on their own because you can short cycle that learning process 
and learn to think. It's really, really, really about learning to think like an investor. And it'll also get you access to banking relationships, access to deal flow, because most of us that have been doing this for a while have more deals and more capital than we can even handle bridging together. And we need good people. That's a good point. So first of all, be clear about what you want. Both type of people you described, they want to quit their job in some way, replace their income, but perhaps they're not clear exactly how to get there. So one path is being the syndicator. The other one is kind of being the passive and being more clear on what, what they want. So that's yep. that's a really good good point. And that way you can create a plan for either of those because you need a certain amount of knowledge to be able to do either. Yeah. Obviously, that, that makes yep. a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. So what are you doing these days? Well, I'm about to head out to Sedona and spend three days meditating. I've been doing a lot of that lately, trying to figure out sort of what the next step is. We just launched a $100 million fund, and we're getting involved in co-sponsorships with some some really big deals, $100 million mm. plus deals, and kind of taking things again to the next level. But again, for the same investor, right? So when we launch a deal that big and we start doing deals that big, we get courted by a lot of institutional capital that wants to write you know, $40 million checks. And it's kind of fun. I mean, we love those people. We love what they're doing. We love what they're doing for the industry. But we have our particular little niche. And it's kind of fun for me to say, you know, I appreciate your 40 million bucks, but I'd rather I'd rather earn it $100,000 at a time for someone I know I can make a difference with. Um, hmm. And so we're, we're doing that. And it's, it's a lot of fun. And we're, we're bringing really big, high quality, high caliber deals to Main Street. And it's super exciting. And we're getting recognized by Wall Street. And they're saying, hey, what you guys are doing is innovative and it's great and we want to support it. And so it's kind of cool. I actually feel like I'm seeing the first light at the end of the tunnel of how we can make an impact on on Wall Street. I'm pretty excited about that. Well, I appreciate you sharing your early story. I mean, clearly you are very excited about what, what you have going on now and you've upped your game over the years to several levels. And I know we focus in on your start uh, and I appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, uh, it's been fun reliving it a little. <laughs> yeah. So, so Kira, how can people get in touch a hold of you if they want to? Yeah. So our website is directsourcewealth.com. So our company name direct meaning we bring deals directly to people, source meaning for me it's about being in alignment with source, true source and that that creates ultimate wealth. So directsourcewealth.com. Our direct numbers on there and also through LinkedIn. Like I check my LinkedIn a lot. We're also on Facebook. I mean, it's hard to miss. And I might just see you on a Southwest Air flight too. And if I do, say hi. That is awesome. All right, Kira, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great one, Michael. Several key lessons for me. Number one is get started early. It doesn't matter how young or old you are. Get started early. In fact, get started now. You know, Kira and most entrepreneurs, they do stuff a little bit in a leap of faith without having figured everything out. And we just feel like we just know enough to kind of get going and we'll figure it out as we go along, even though we don't have anything else figured out in the beginning. It really, really is a key lesson here is, is to start taking action, even though you're uncomfortable because you don't have everything figured out up front. The second is get your mind right, right? Really look at your mindset. What do you want? What are your goals? How badly do you want them? What are you running away from and what do you want to run towards? Get your mind right. And she talked at the end about meditating for three days. There's a lot to that, you know, is really being quiet and listening and thinking and figuring out what you're called to do. And it's really, really important. 
And then immediately what she did is she built her team of advisors. And this does several things. One is it actually shifts her mind because now she's surrounded with people who think so big. You know, imagine in a room full of people who you can spend an hour with the likes of Robert Kiyosaki. Can you imagine what happens to your mind? They look at your small mind, your small thinking, and they share their thinking. And all of a sudden, your mind goes, my gosh, I didn't know that was possible. That's amazing. These guys do this as if it's nothing. And I'm worried about this little thing. And your mind starts to, to shift. And through those relationships... It led to other things like co-sponsorships, equity partners, and that kind of stuff. But it all starts with building relationships. And she just went out and cold called people. You know, use bigger pockets, use my community on the michaelblank.com, LinkedIn like Kira did, and start reaching out and building an advisory board, people around you. That was huge. And then partner early on. I mean, she partnered and it didn't work out quite the way she wanted to, but really allowed her to get into that deal. And I see that with Michael Becker, who I interviewed a, a while back, is it really launched him into the stratosphere from going from zero to a thousand units. Joe Fairless certainly did it. Uh, I've done it as well. And you know, once you get a few deals on your belt, you don't have to partner anymore because you have the track record. You can more easily raise your own money. You have access to crowdfunding. You get access to family offices. It gets a lot, lot easier. So partner early. Now, for, for those of you who don't know, I have a coaching program. I have an online training program that teaches you how to basically syndicate your deal and raise money. But I also offer a partnership, a joint venture partnership. This is something that's relatively new. We've already had one deal close and the 69 unit in Memphis that closed in April. We have about a half dozen deals now that have been submitted to the deal desk in some form ready to be partnered with. So if you want to find out more about that, you go to themichaelblanc.com forward slash partner. That's themichaelblanc, T-H-E. Michael Blanc, B-L-A-N-K dot com forward slash partner and just look and then see what my criteria are and how to do that. So if you're up for that, that's something that we can offer as well and partner with you in this. And essentially, we raise all the money, you find the deal and we take care of the rest. So partner with someone doesn't have to be us, but partner with someone with experience who can co-sponsor, who can invest money, who can raise money for you. And that is the quickest way to get to the biggest deal fast. All right, guys, appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time and attention. I'll catch you in the next episode. You know, I talk about that first deal a lot, and it's because it's so important. I know that if I can help you do your first deal, you will be financially free in two to three years. That's what the law of the first deal says, and I observe it over and over and over again, which is why I focus all of my attention on that first deal. If you'd like to experience what it's like to do your first deal, I have a workshop coming up in October and where we basically go through a deal from start to finish all the way from finding it, analyzing it, making offers, getting into contract, doing due diligence. You're going to have to deal with twists and turns in your small group to kind of work through those things. And by the time you're done, it will be as if you've done your first deal yourself. And that's going to be in October. Uh, you can find out more information about that at the michaelblanc.com forward slash events. And that will likely become an annual event. So even if you listen to this podcast, if the workshop's already closed or it's past the state, uh, there will likely be another one posted on there. So if you want to do your first deal, that workshop is probably the best way to get you there the fastest. It comes with the online course, The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings. It's included when you sign up for that workshop. In fact, I require you that you complete that before you get to the workshop. Uh, and then we will do that first deal together and your mind will be blown. Your comfort zone will be expanded and you are going to be ready to do the deal yourself. So if you want to experience your first deal, go to michaelblank.com forward slash summit. Check it out. Let me know if you have any questions. Otherwise, I'd love to see you in person and it's going to be in the Washington, D.C. area the first time around and maybe somewhere else, maybe some kind of exotic locale. We'll see. So again, would love to see you in person. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. 
For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.